As I mentioned before, my name is Seth, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm um, excited, humbled at the same time to be able to preach the word this morning to you, and I want to start with a story. I want to start with a story about an amazing, a great football coach. He was the young hotshot coming up. He was a guy that rose quickly through the ranks. He, uh, he loved, was loved by his players. He was praised by his opponents, and this guy was even named one of the 50 most beautiful people at one point. He had it all. At one point, he just missed the Super Bowl. Right? He was in the conference championship. They just barely lost the game. He missed out on an opportunity to go to the Super Bowl. And then in that offseason, something unheard of happened. The coach was traded for draft picks. He was traded for draft picks. So in his first year with the new team, he goes over to the other conference and he makes the Super Bowl. And the irony is that he went up against his old team. And he crushed them. He doesn't beat them. He trounced the team that traded him. Vindication. He went on to have a long coaching career. He became a well-known announcer. And after years of working uh, the booth, working uh, in, for TV, he gets another coaching offer. His old team wants him back. A few years, they begin the rebuilding process. They trade away some old disgruntled stars. They bring in new guys, and then it all comes crashing down. And this is a story we've seen all too often. Old emails are released. The coach years ago had used language he shouldn't. He had disparaged others, degrading, demeaning. Honestly, it was just downright awful. And again, you've seen this story play out before. Coach was forced to resign in disgrace. His secrets laid bare for all to see. What a compelling story. I, I love that, the rise of a man, and then you see the fall, and it's hard to watch. Yet, at the same time, if we're honest, we all love a good story like that, don't we? We love a good, compelling story, the one that has the twists and turns, cliffhangers, suspense, an incredible ending. We love that. I enjoy true crime stories. Sometimes we're flipping channels. It's like, ah, oh, let's go back to an old 2020 or a Dateline Shows like that, and they always begin, right? It's the same thing. They're all the same story. They begin in a small town, some sort of tragedy that nobody saw coming, tense interviews, dramatic footage, suspenseful music, and finally, you figure out it was a neighbor next door all along. You gotta be kidding me. No way, you never saw it coming, did you? Nah, you did. They're all the same. Don't kid yourself. In today's passage, the Lord sends the prophet Nathan to King David to tell him a story. And it's a short story, but it's one that has an incredible twist at the end. But I think first, just a little bit of background to get you up to speed would be necessary. So I told you we're going to drop in on King David's story. King David was the second king of Israel. The Israelites, after coming out of exile in Egypt, wandered in the desert. They eventually begged the Lord for a king. He relented, gave them a king. King Saul was the first king. He was not a good king. He was not the leader that the people desired. David seems different. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. David was, by all accounts, especially early on, he was a great leader of the people. But at the time that we're going to drop in on the story, it seems like maybe David has grown just a bit complacent. So one evening... While his army is away at war, and David should have been with him, by the way, but he wasn't, one night he's wandering around on the roof of the palace. 
wandering aimlessly and he happens to look down at a house that's next door and he sees a beautiful woman bathing down there. And she's cleansing herself to go and worship and he wants to know who that is. And he sends his servants out to find out who that is and they come back and they say, King, stay away. She's married. And her husband, Uriah, is one of your soldiers who's away at war right now where you should be. But that doesn't deter King David in this story. He sends for her. He calls her in. He sleeps with her. And she sends word later that she's pregnant. David's got a problem on his hand, does he not? But in his own mind, he can fix this. King David can fix this, can't he? He's like, I got it. I'm going I'm to bring Uriah home, and that'll cover it all up. I'll cover my sin. So he does just that. He calls Uriah back from the battlefield. Uriah comes home, but Uriah, he doesn't account for this. Uriah's an honorable man. Uriah knows that while his fellow soldiers are away at war, that it would not be right for him to be at home with his wife. So David entertains him, and David sends him home, and Uriah tells the king this, and Uriah goes out and sleeps at the door of the palace. Step one is foiled. Step two, David says, I know. He brings him back a second night, and he gets him drunk. He says, this will do it. He'll go home, and he'll be with his wife now. But he still doesn't account for the honor of Uriah, and Uriah stumbles out and passes out in the courtyard and doesn't go home. David's now missed on his first two. He's got to go to to plan C, his last-ditch effort. And he says, I know. And he pens a letter, and he seals it with the king's seal, and he hands it to Uriah, and he sends Uriah back to the battlefield. And Uriah doesn't know that the letter holds his death sentence. Uriah carries his very death sentence back out to battle, and he gives it to the commander, and the the letter tells the commander, this is what you're going to do. Send all the troops forward, including Uriah, but send him into the hardest part of the battle. And when I give a sign, everybody is to draw back, but we're not going to tell Uriah. And he'll be killed in battle. And that plan, unfortunately, works to perfection. Troops go into battle. Uriah is a, a fierce fighter. He's at the front lines. They draw back, and he's killed. And that brings us to today's passage. So if you have a Bible, would you open up? to 2 Samuel chapter 12. I want to read the first 15 verses. And we use the English Standard Version here, the ESV. If you're uh, flipping through translations on an app on your phone, we've got Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, you're welcome to just simply take one of those home with you today. But again, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. And I want to read that right now. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, the prophet Nathan. And he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And we see David's response. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And it gets good. Nathan says to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father, I pray this morning that you would speak through me. Would these not be my words, Father? Would they be your words spoken through me? I pray that ears would be opened, that hearts would be opened, that God, your word would be illuminated. Bring out truths in your word, Lord, that we need to see this morning, no matter how hard they may be, and be glorified here with us in this gathering, Father. In your name we pray, amen. I want to look at the beginning of the passage, and I think that Nathan came to David, not necessarily with the intent to mislead, but to help him see a situation for what it really was. And David, or Nathan lays out a very specific story, and the story is designed to appeal to David's sense of justice, his desire for justice. And Nathan weaves a tale. He compares and contrasts the man with the lot and the man with nothing. And then there's this wicked turn in the middle of it, isn't there? Rather than take from his own abundance, the rich man takes what little the poor man had. He takes his only lamb, the one that was like a daughter to him. And David pounces, doesn't he? He doesn't hesitate to pronounce judgment. And rightfully so, he pronounces a death sentence and restitution. But I think it's fascinating that David so quickly condemns another man while he's secretly hiding his own sin. David surely knows that he sinned, and yet he misses this, to us at least, this really obvious connection that Nathan is showing him. And it's only then that Nathan reveals the true meaning of his story, the reason that he's come, and he nails him, doesn't he? <laughs> he says, you are the man. In verses seven through nine, he lays out his case. He says, I, this is the Lord speaking through Nathan, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, if that wasn't enough, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the, work, the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. 
to paraphrase that, David, I've given you everything, and yet you've despised my law. You've disobeyed. You've sinned against me. And David knows that his lie has been found out, doesn't he? And his response shows that. And I just, I want to pull two, two themes, two points really out of this here this morning. It's going to be David's confession and God's response. Simple, right? We can remember those. David's confession and God's response. And I want to hopefully answer the question then, but what does it mean for me? So first, David's confession. Now let's look at his response, right? Because that's where we're going. We're going right to his response. He David says, well, you know, I was just on the roof one night. I, I, people, people die in battle all the time. And after Uriah was killed, well, of course I was going to take care of Bathsheba, right? Excuses, blame, right? Uh-uh, not even close to that. David's response is just one line recorded here, and it's simple and it's profound. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. My sin is against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. David was cut to the heart. He was laid low. He knew he had sinned, and he knew that his sin had been uncovered. His response is one that I want to examine a little bit more closely because I think we can learn a lot from it. But I want to stop for a second. I want to just give a really short plug for reading through the Bible but doing it in a very specific way. So here at Oaks, we've been trying to read through the Bible in 2022. And there's a couple ways you can do it. You can read it cover to cover, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, on through Revelation. But I want to maybe plug a slightly different approach. There's a chronological track that will take you through the Bible either in the, in the order that the events happened or the order that it was written. And a good example would be, you may read a story in Matthew and read that parallel story, the account of the same events, consecutively, seeing different angles and different perspectives on it. And if you read it simply cover to cover, you might miss this connection that I'm going to pull out this morning. If you read it chronologically, you're going to read 2 Samuel 12, and then immediately following, you're going to turn in your Bible and you're going to go to Psalm chapter 51. And that's what I want to do right now. Would you turn in your Bible? Would you go to Psalm chapter 51? Because Psalm 51, David wrote, pouring his heart out in response to being confronted by Nathan. And if you have an ESV Bible or maybe even the app, there's probably a heading to this passage that says something like, create in me a clean heart, O God. And I want to read this right now. The first, I'm going to read the first 15 verses of it. Have mercy on me, O God. And again, remember, this is written in response to being confronted by Nathan. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Wow. I want to look at under the heading now of David's confession, I want to look at it. You can consider them subpoints, maybe A, B, and C, three characteristics of David's confession that were eye-opening to me when I dug into this passage. I hope they are for you as well. The first is that David confesses that his sin is against the Lord. David confesses that his sin is against the Lord. And I don't know about you, but that jumps off the page at me. Because David's line is against you and you only have I sinned. And you go, wait, what? Against the Lord only? There's a dead man and a pregnant woman who now has no husband who would beg to differ. And David, you say your sin is against the Lord and the Lord only. I want to consider this about that response from David. I think he recognizes that his sin and our sin is firstly and primarily against a holy God. There may be others that are impacted by sin, but it is firstly against God himself. And if we look a little closer, deep down, I think every sin has its root in breaking the first commandment, which is that you shall have no other gods before me. I think every sin can be traced back to that, to having a God in your life that you worship above the one true God. David became a bit complacent. He lost sense of who he was created to serve. He should have been away at war with his army at that time, should he not? Instead, he was wandering aimlessly on the roof at night. And I think David was captivated by Bathsheba's beauty because he was no longer captivated by God's beauty. Again, I think David was captivated by Bathsheba's beauty because he was no longer captivated by God. And therefore, his sin was against the Lord. He had another God before the Lord. I think you should try this sometime in your own life. You should try tracing back to the core of sin. Find out how you worship something other than God. And for me, as I was thinking through this, preparing for a sermon, it became really clear. I, when I'm trying to focus on this, and there are distractions around from some little ones running around in the house, I tend to, I tend to respond harshly. And I think it's because they break my concentration, they make it harder to prepare, but ultimately if I dig a little bit deeper, it's because I desperately want to write a good sermon because I desperately seek the approval of man. <laughs> I want you guys to think that I can write a good sermon far more than I care what God thinks. And that is worship of self over worship of God. And I think that's breaking the first commandment, which is exactly what I'm talking about here. I hope you see it, I hope you take it in, I hope it changes the way you look at sin, because I think even an innocent glance, I think even something small that you feel like doesn't impact other people can be traced back to a sin against the Lord. The second aspect of David's confession that I want to point out is that David knows his sin is inherent in who he is. David knows his sin is inherent in who he is. In Psalm 51 
Verse five, he said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David's sinful nature was exposed by the Lord through Nathan. See, David was selfish, he was greedy, he was self-centered, he was ungrateful, he was a thief, and he was a murderer. And when you and I are caught in sin, I think our tendency is to think that it's really not that bad, right? Just kind of a moment of weakness. Maybe it didn't hurt anybody, but David understands that, that it's much more than that, and he goes a lot deeper than that. He goes much farther. He says, you don't even understand. He says, that sin, it's not just what I do, it's actually at the very center of who I am. The concept is known as original sin, and Wayne Grudem talks about it like this. He says, it's not just that some parts of us are sinful and other parts are pure. Rather, every part of our being is affected by sin. Our intellects, emotions, and desires, our hearts, that is the center of our desires and decision-making process, our goals, motives, and even our physical bodies. Sin isn't just something that we do from time to time. It's truly what defines us. We are sinners. And David's confession that's modeled here for us in Psalm 51 shows that he really and truly understands that. So the first aspect of David's confession, his sin was against the Lord. Second, sin is inherent in who he is. And the third aspect of it that I want to look at is that David appeals to the mercy of God alone. David appeals to the mercy of God alone. And wouldn't it be natural for us to appeal on our own merits? And if it would be natural for us, think about King David. Can you imagine him saying, Lord, don't you remember? Don't you remember when I slayed the giant? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I led your people well? I want to circle back to that coach at the beginning. Remember the one I mentioned, the rise, the fall? I want to circle back to him because it's a true story. And just this week, he made these comments, and I want to read it. He said, I'm ashamed about what has come about in these emails, and I'll make no excuses for it. It's shameful but I'm a good person. I believe that. He says, I go to church. I've been married for 31 years. I've got three great boys. I still love football, he says. Go Bucks. I've made mistakes, but I don't think anybody in here hasn't, and I just ask for forgiveness, and hopefully I get another shot. Now, there's some redemption there at the end, is there not? He knows he isn't perfect, but what does he appeal to? What's his original appeal? And it really stands in stark contrast to David. See, jo uh, Coach John Gruden, I suspect many of you know the name, on his own, in his own nature, he says, I've done bad things, but deep down, I'm good. I'm actually good. I go to church. I've stayed married for 31 years. I want another chance. But David shows something different. David models this differently, and it's profoundly different. Instead of trying to persuade God, David appeals to God's mercy. He says it right at the beginning of that passage. Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He appeals not on his own merit, but on God's mercy, and it's the only sure thing. God's mercy is the only sure thing. 
Moments ago, you saw how sin is at the very core of who we are, that God's standard is perfection and that we all fall short all the time. The only hope we have is the wonderful mercy of God, and that's wonderful hope to have. See, it's in his very character to be merciful to those on whom he will show mercy. And that's a profound mystery, but it is true, and it's, it's over and over in the Bible you see it. David's confession shows that he knows that, and he models it well for us. He's not saying he'll do better, he'll try harder, he'll get it right next time, he just needs another chance. It's not what he says. Instead, he appeals on the only ground that will not crumble. The incredible mercy of our loving God. As I was studying, a commentator wrote a profound sentence. He said, repentance begins where blame shifting, bargaining, and rationalization end. Repentance begins where blame shifting, bargaining, and rationalization end. I love that, but I'm terrified by it too. I hope you are as well. If we aren't, we're not truly repenting unless we're relying solely on the mercy of God, just as David shows us. Now that brings me to my second point. Remember, we had David's confession and now God's response. Certainly, David, as a result of his sin, is deserving the death sentence that he pronounced on the rich man. God would be just in striking David down and punishing him immediately for his sin. And remember, David knew that his sin was at the very center of his being, that he was born in sin. And I think most of us are familiar with the verse that says, for the wages of sin is death. But look for just a second in verse 13 at the absolutely incredible response of God to David's acknowledgement of his sin. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And the Lord says, I have put away your sin. You shall not die. How short and sweet and yet incredibly profound. I think the most profound part of this whole passage is God's response. David deserved death. He alone was responsible for his adulterous and murderous acts, was he not? And yet God chooses to have mercy. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 2 when he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. I think our hearts ought to be stirred to respond stirred to respond to this kind of mercy. And not with a, whew, thank goodness, right? Now I don't have to worry about that. True confession and repentance more, is more than just moving on and forgetting. It's turning as well. We are called to be killing sin. The Puritans dubbed this, termed it mortification of sin. It's the putting to death the flesh that is putting to death the very desires of the flesh. Now maybe, maybe you're not like David literally wandering aimlessly on the roof of your house at night looking at someone else's wife. But I bet if you're honest, you can identify an area of your life where you're just wandering around looking at something that isn't yours. This is an easy one, right? You're on your phone. You're simply looking at what you shouldn't be looking at. 
Maybe it's even harmless. You're just looking at the next pair of shoes you want or the vacation you want to go on. But I think we should prayerfully consider where in our lives we're just wandering aimlessly on the rooftop. Slowly giving way to our sinful desires, not fighting sin with the power of the Holy Spirit who is alive and at work within us. Write that one down. Ask that question of yourself later. Where am I just wandering aimlessly? Looking around, slowly giving way to sinful desires, not fighting with the power of the Spirit. Where are you not fixing your gaze on your wonderful creator? You're not discipling your kids. You're not spurring one another on to love the Lord and serve him. Where are you banking on being a good person? Just going to church. Loving football, right? Like Coach Gruden. We're called to put our sin to death. Don't play with it. It's far too dangerous. It's going to hang around and it will destroy you. Instead, replace the desires of your heart with the things and the thoughts of God. I want to go back to David. See, in sin, David pronounced death in a try-harder mentality, didn't he? When you heard the story, he says, the man ought to die and he ought to pay back. Try to fix it yourself. Pay for the stolen lamb. But a better David is coming. One who instead of pronouncing death would himself take the fall. A better David is coming. One who wouldn't try to cover sin. Try to push it to the side. Try to pretend it's nothing. Who wouldn't use his position of power to exploit people. Instead, no, Jesus lived perfectly becoming the perfect sacrifice once and for all, defeating sin and death. But check this out, because that Savior came from the line of David. David's son, the one conceived with Bathsheba, would die. Nathan tells him this in the passage. Sin has consequences here on earth, and I wish I had more time to go into that. There are real consequences to our sin here. But after that son's death, David and Bathsheba have another son, and his name was Solomon. And through that line, God chooses to bring his own son into the world. And I think it's a beautiful picture of God using the brokenness of this world to bring about his perfect plan of salvation and restoration. And God's merciful answer to David should give us confidence. I think it should give us confidence to approach the foot of the cross and to confess our sin. And maybe you sit here today and you think, I'm not nearly as bad as David. And I hope from a worldly perspective that's true of all of us. I hope we aren't adulterers and murderers. But we were and we are just like King David. We are quick to condemn as he was. Blind to our own transgressions and we're dead in our sin. But God made a way for us to know him. He sent Jesus to the earth to save us. And instead of writing a story like we might have with a savior coming, conquering militarily, defeating enemies here on earth, actually quite the opposite. He came to serve and he came to die. The only one ever to live perfectly, never to sin, was the one who had to die to take away sin. He conquered death. Rising again after three days, his resurrection once and for all conquering sin too And at the beginning, I set out to answer a question. Well, what does this mean for us? We all sin. And what we, what you do next is not something to be played with. It's a matter of life and death. See, it's not do you sin, it's how do you respond when you sin. 
Is your life marked with repentance? Do you run to the Lord confessing your sin to him alone and appealing on his mercy alone? Because that's the only way. It's the only way to be declared righteous before him. You have to appeal on the righteousness of his perfect son. But rest assured, when you bring your burdens to the cross, when you cast your cares on him, when you confess your sin and turn to Christ, here's the thing, the response to you will be the same as it was to David. Your sin has been covered. It's been put away and it will not be counted against you. Hallelujah, that's beautiful news this morning. Would you pray with me? Then we're gonna stand and sing again. Father, use these words, Lord, to stir hearts. I pray that you would be glorified in us, Lord, as we confess our sin to you, as we run to you in repentance, Lord, turning, knowing that we are sinful, and not just that we commit sins, but that we are sinners, that it defines us, Father. But thank you for the good news that when we bring that to the foot of the cross, when we confess our sin, Father, that you are faithful to forgive us our sins, and that the very righteousness of Christ will be given to us. And that restores us to our right relationship with you, God. And it's the only way. And I pray that we would see that this morning and that we would mark our lives, Lord. So be with us, Father, as we stand and we sing out, hopefully with great joy because of the work you've done in our lives. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.